Open your Bible to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we're looking at verses 5 to 9, and particularly we're studying the topic of leadership and leadership in the church, leadership in the local church, and we're taking our time through this because it's of great importance these days. Titus chapter 1, is your Bible naturally opening up there yet? Is it, is it ready? Is it kind of got the tab there? It's kind of like it just kind of flops open. If it doesn't, there will be a time when it does, because we're going to just be pressing into this so much, and I love it. The church uh, is very important to Jesus Christ. The church is very important to God. Jesus is the author. He is the designer. He is the builder of the church. Jesus said very, very clearly, I will build my church. The church is precious to Christ. He possesses it. He died for it. Ephesians 5 tells us that he is the head of the church. And the church is the collection of believers together in one place, worshiping God. The church is the living and active organism, body of Christ on earth, designed to be pure and to model who Jesus Christ is. And what makes the church attractive and what makes the church compelling to the rest of the world is its purity. The fact that a, a body of people comes together to be sanctified unto Christ and to live pure lives, it's what makes it attractive, it's what makes it compelling. And the character then of the people in the church, the character of the people of God are in large part dependent upon the character of the leadership. Hosea says this, like priest, like people. The leadership leads and the people follow. The people are a reflection of its leadership and in the perfect design of God for his church that he loves and that he died for is that there would be men, leaders, who exemplify godliness to push people and to point people to Christ and to purity because it's in that purity that they become compelling and attractive to others and radiate the glory of God. And so, what Titus learns then from Paul in this letter to him is that there needs to be leaders in the church who have character. You can say it like this, character trumps everything else in leadership when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. God values a man of integrity. God values a man of character above everything else. God values a man who, who is what he says he is and does what he says he will do. Historically, though, this has not been the quality that mankind has looked for in leadership. This is not what man values most in leadership. I mean, just take a look at the presidency and the presidency of the past few years or the past few decades and we'll see what America values most, and it's not character. Mankind has always been infatuated with leaders who stand out for everything else other than character. Their charisma, their ability to get things done, their popularity, their communication skills, their attractiveness, their personality, 
And that's not something that's new to America. In fact, go all the way back to 1 Samuel, to the very first king that was chosen by people. And what did they choose? They chose a man that what? That was taller than everybody else. A man who stood out because of his outward appearance in King Saul. He won the popular vote because of what he looked like and not what his character was like. And you guys know the story. It was a disaster for Israel. God steps in and says, you chose the wrong guy, obviously because of his outward appearance. God chooses King David, who is a man after his own heart. Because God values character above everything else when it comes to leadership. To look at the heart of the man. Find the man with the, the greatest character and the greatest integrity so that the church can see an example of purity, so the church can see example of how to live their life so that they can be effective in this world. And Paul tells Titus, look at it in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The purpose you're in Crete, the purpose you're jumping around from church to church, is to find men, find leaders, find elders who can set the example for the rest to follow. Men who fit the qualifications, men who are worthy of examples, men who are worthy of imitation, men who reflect the glory of God, because as the leadership goes, so follows the church. So find qualified leaders to lead the church. It's interesting, and we know this, I've noted this before uh, in, in the, the past weeks as we studied this, you guys can write out for yourselves the, the different qualifications here, and you'll notice in every qualification it has to do about character and nothing about competency except for one thing, and that is to be able to teach the Word of God. It's all about the character of the man. And I said this as well, just to kind of bring it back fresh in our minds as we kind of jump into this. Uh, this list of qualifications here, is a window into the heart of God. It's a window into seeing what God values most. We're able to, if it were, to kind of peel back the curtain and look into heaven and to see what is on the heart of God. What does God value most? If God was to stand in front of a mirror and what was reflected off that mirror would be these qualities right here. If God was to, to lean over uh, on a pond and, and look down, the reflection of that pond would read this list right here. This is, this is who God is, and if you want to be godly in this world, this is what you strive to be. Because this is what God values. This is the heart of God. And so as we sit here, as you sit there, and as you, as you go over this list, as you think through this list, you are rightly evaluating your heart against the heart of God. Sometimes we like to evaluate our heart against the hearts of others around us, and, and somehow we just find ourselves at the top of that list. But when we evaluate our heart against the heart of God, then we find, hey, there's changes that need to happen in my life. Transformation needs to happen in our lives. For the elders, this is the standard. For elders, this is the bar. 
So with that, here's the characteristics, and I want to read through this here in a second, but just by way of reminder from last week, the ones that we did look over, there was these negative things that the elder was not to have in his life. He was not to have a charge against them. And remember, it was this. Number one, they were not to be arrogant, but humble. Elders are not to be quick-tempered, but patient. Elders are not to be a drunkard, but filled with the Spirit. Elders are not to be violent, but gentle and meek. Elders are not to be greedy for money, but sacrificial givers. This morning, there's six more qualities that I want us to look at together. But first, let me read this for us. I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Here's what it says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Eyes on verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's ask the Lord for help this morning as we jump into verses 8, or verse 8 this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we need your help. It does no good for us to open up the Word of God and not ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. As we are not talking about material things, we're talking about spiritual things. And we want our hearts and our minds to be ushered into heaven this morning where we can see the face of God, where we can contemplate the heart of God, and we can hear from you to know how our own lives need our own lives need grace to be able to conform to your will. And we need your help to do that. So help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The next six qualities here are positive qualities. And the first one on this uh, list, the second half of this list, is this. Elders or leaders, godly leaders, are to be hospitable. They're to be hospitable. A godly man opens his home to strangers. Hospitable is a, in the, in the Greek there, it's a, it's a compound word, and it has two words that are put together. It's the word for love. And the word for neighbor, it means to love your neighbor. It means to love those who you do not know. It means to have a stranger over to your home for dinner. It means inviting people into your home who you do not know. It doesn't mean that you have your friends over for dinner. It doesn't mean that you have those who you know really well over for dinner. But the true essence of the word hospitable it means that you have those into your home who you don't know very well, if not a complete stranger to you. And the leader 
of the church, the elders of the church, the godly men of the church are to model and display hospitality. Because hospitality is, the, is at the heart and the nature of Jesus Christ. You say it this way, to show hospitality is to show the love of Christ. Christ loved those who were far off. Christ loved those who were distant from him, who wanted nothing to do with him, who had nothing in common with him. Christ loved and pursued those who were alienated from him. He brought them in. He was kind to strangers. He loved strangers. He, he showed his own heart to the stranger. If you look over with me in Romans chapter 12, there's a, there's a verse here, this, this same admonition. In Romans chapter 12, in verse 13, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, it, it, it starts out there. You can see the heading there of this, this section, this paragraph. It says, marks of a true Christian. And it starts out with this, let love be genuine. Okay, how can my love be genuine? Well, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And what? And seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Seek to reach those who you do not know very well, invite them into your home, show them the love of Jesus Christ, show them grace by bringing them into that which you're most comfortable in, your own home. In 1 Peter, uh, it's helpful that we see it in 1 Peter, uh, it says it this way, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, it says this, very clearly, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Just imagine bringing a stranger into your home and all you do is grumble the entire time. <laughs> I mean, what good is that? It's no good at all, right? The whole reason, the whole point that you bring them into your home and you show hospitality and you show love to them is because you want to reflect the true love of Jesus Christ into that person. I know nothing about you, but I want to get to know you. I know nothing about you, but I want to draw you near and draw you close. And I want to show you the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ. Growing up, my, my family had a uh, an open door policy. I mean, literally an, an open door policy. And I remember people coming to our home all the time, particularly this one instance when our family had just moved to Fresno, California. We were two block, no, two houses away from the junior high. I, I was starting the eighth grade. We moved in that summer, new to this home, new to that area. It was the fourth junior high that I was about to attend. I knew nobody at this school. At about 7.20 in the morning, a, a, a kid on his scooter in eighth grade scootered into our, our, our yard, uh, parked his scooter in our front yard, and he came and he knocked on the door. My dad got, got there, he opened up the door, and, and the guy said, oh, I, I, thought, I thought the previous owners were, were here. And, and my dad said, well, what's your name? He said, my name is Sam. And he goes, Sam, come on in. Come have breakfast. And so Sam came in, and he had breakfast with us. 
And he had breakfast with us every single morning of that entire year. And Sam was like, the Pimothys, let's go to their house. They make waffles and they have cereal for breakfast. He invited his friends. So we had four or five other kids, other eighth, seventh, eighth grade boys, park their bikes at my house and come in and have breakfast. We didn't know them at all. But that was the nature of my family, the nature of my father was to have anybody over. I mean, literally just knocked on the door. Hey, come in and get to have breakfast. Hospitality. A godly man displays hospitality in the home. He displays hospitality in the home and a love for strangers. While the wife of the home is ready and eager to serve and display the love of God in her ability to make them feel at home. My house is your house because it's actually not my house at all. It's God's house. And I'm a steward of his blessing in my life. Many of you may say this, well, it's just not my personality to be hospitable. That's not my personality. I, I find nowhere in Scripture where personality gives you an out to obey God. Not anywhere. You say, well, actually, I'm, I'm quite introverted. And so I okay, invite an introvert over to your house then. You guys can introvert together in your home. And some of you are like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of this way, and I actually want the opposite of that, because then they can do all the talking. It works out. It may be harder for you, but you don't get an out for your personality. It might be harder to obey, but it's also harder for others to obey in other areas. And as we invite people in our home, the grace of God is poured out into the hearts of your guests through you. Number two is this, love what is good. This is another compound word, uh, putting together the words love and good into one single Greek word. It means exactly what it says there. A godly man loves what is good and he hates what is evil. He abhors what is evil. He pushes away what is evil because he is attracted to that which is good. In fact, he loves what is good. He does what is good. He's zealous to do what is good. You say, well, how do you know if a man loves what is good? Well, you've got to look into their life and what he does. What does this man listen to? What does this man purchase? What does this man watch? What, what kind of movies does he watch? What kind of TV does he watch? Who does he surround himself with? What other kinds of friends do they have? How does he spend his nights? How does he spend his weekends? How does he talk to other people? Is he critical? Is he kind? Is he gentle? Does he show acts of kindness? Does he flee temptation? This is a man who loves what is good because he's attracted to that which is good. He wouldn't find himself in a scenario where it'd be questioned whether or not he's going to choose what is good or, or choose what is evil. And they surround themselves with people who help him promote and do what is good. The opposite of that would be somebody who is crooked. Somebody who's always looking for a way out. Somebody who's looking for a shortcut. Somebody who is saying and doing inappropriate things, hiding behind uh, their back, doing things in secret. They don't love what is good. They love what is evil. Galatians 6.10 says this, Let us do good to everyone, especially the household of God. If you look even in Titus, let's let your eye drop down into to Titus chapter 3, 
in verse 8, when we understand the grace of God in our life, when we understand that God has transformed our own lives and our own hearts, then what are we going to do? We are eventually going to be zealous for good works. We're going to devote ourselves to good works, as it says in verse 8. Let me ask you this question, men. When people say your name, do they immediately say, man, that guy loves what is good. That guy pursues what is good all the time. He loves to be in the presence of people who are good. I would never question what that guy watches. I would never question what that guy looks, like, looks at on the internet. I would never question what, that, what movies that guy, that guy has because that guy loves what is good. And he's zealous to do good deeds for other people. That's the essence of that word and what that means. Number three on the list is this. Look in your Bibles. It says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. This is where we really need to dig in here and understand this word. There's different, different ways to translate this word, uh, self-controlled. And I think the best is to understand what it says in the Greek. And again, it's a compound word. And this time it's really helpful to us because it brings these two words together. It brings the word mind and save together. Mind and save together. I think the better translation here is sober-minded. And when we put these two, two, uh, two words together, mind and save, it, it's another way of saying this, that this man saves his thoughts. He redeems his thoughts. He's able to control his thoughts. A sober-minded man a self-controlled man is able to not allow his mind to wander into inappropriate thoughts. He rescues them. He redeems them before they become inappropriate. He's disciplined enough in his mind that, that he doesn't allow his mind to go down that path. When he's tempted, when he's lured into temptation that he should not be in, he has self-control. He's, he's sober-minded in his thinking. Proverbs tells us this, that as a man thinks, so he is. And so a self-controlled, sober-minded man who is able to save his thoughts from getting becoming inappropriate, and when they become inappropriate and their thoughts of evil deeds... Eventually, that's who this man is. You say, well, what does he guard his mind from? Well, he guards his mind from sexual lust. He guards his mind from thinking evil or badly about others. He guards his mind from speech that would be inappropriate. He thinks and believes the best in others. He protects his mind from anything that's going to cause him to think ill about other people. He's going to guard his mind from when other people are being critical. He's going to guard his mind when other people are saying things that are inappropriate. He's not going to allow his, his mind to go that way. He's going to redeem his thoughts. He also guards his mind from idleness. He doesn't just let his mind sit and think all day without acting upon it and the dangers of becoming an idle man. He's self-controlled. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, uh, this parallel passage that Paul wrote to, to Timothy, uh, it uses this same word here. Uh, instead, of, um, instead of the word for self-controlled, it's sober-minded. Or uh, another word that, that's very helpful that, that can come out of the same Greek word is prudent. So part of being sober-minded is having the ability to rise above coarse joking, inappropriate conversation, useless chatter. You're prudent in your thinking. You're wise. You're disciplined. You have good judgment in conversation. You know what's appropriate to say. You know when it's not appropriate to say something. Your mind is filled with the thoughts of God, not filled with uh, what the next joke is or what the next critique is or what the next shot at the next person is. You're filled with the thoughts of God. You're prudent. You're self-controlled. You're, you're sober-minded. In fact, you find critical people, gossip, coarse joking, useless, inappropriate chatter to be immature. You don't even want to go there. You're prudent in your thinking. You rise above it. You're self-controlled. In fact, you, you commit to 2 Corinthians 10.5, which is to take every thought captive. I like what it says in Philippians. In fact, let's just turn there because it's helpful to us. In Philippians chapter 4, in verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, in verse 8, it says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what does it say next? Think about these things. This is where your mind is. It's on that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, commendable. It's, it's on excellence. Anything worthy of praise, that's where your mind is. That's where a godly man's mind is. It's thinking about those things. And this is the characteristics of, of an elder and of a godly man. Number four, then, is this. He is upright. Meaning this, he's righteous in his dealings with people. The way he deals with people is in righteousness. He lives and practices righteousness and he demands righteousness out of others and the way he counsels and deals with people is in a just and upright way. He's approved by God. He's a workman who is not ashamed and he lives according to the standards of God. And you can see that in the way that he deals with other people. And you can see this in, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. It says this, What is required of you, O man, but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. A, a leader in the church, an elder in the church, a, a godly man in the home is someone who deals in justice and righteousness with people. He counsels according to the word of God. He counsels according to the standard of the word of God. And God is the ultimate standard by which we judge man. And so the leader is to have righteousness and to lead 
in an upright manner. Number five, holiness. Holiness or holy. To be holy is simply to be separated from sin, and only God is genuinely, entirely, perfectly holy. And the word here that's used for holiness describes here a life of holiness or a life that is set apart from sin. So the leader or the elder is to be characterized by a life that's set apart from sin, away from sin. It's not characterized by a life of sin. You can see this word's used in Acts 2.27, Hebrews 7.26, Revelation 16.5. And the leader desires then to live a life of holiness. They desire to separate themselves from the world. Listen, not attach themselves to the world. Their desire is not to get as close to the world as possible, to look as close as the world as possible, to desire the things of the world as possible, to find that line and get all the way up to it before not totally stepping into sin. But rather, their, their desire is to get as close to God as possible, as far away from temptation, as far away from the world, as far away from the culture and standards of the world, and to be as close to God as possible. They take the stand on truth and holiness, and their life is characterized by holy living. I love what David said in Psalm uh, 73 in verse 28. He said this, It is good for me to draw near to God. It's good for me to be as close to God as possible and as far from the world as possible. So what does a godly leader do? He separates himself from the world in his actions, in his life, in his marriage, in how he raises his children, in the way he disciplines, in the, in the spiritual disciplines. He sets himself apart in wisdom and counsel because he is so close to God. He is so near to God that he can't even think about being close to the world. He pursues a life of holiness. And what happens then is when you see a man who is filled with holiness, who is pursuing holiness, what happens then is that becomes infectious in the church. And you see people in the church who are living a life of holiness and they stand for courage and they stand for truth and their, their life is disciplined. All that does is become a magnet that you want to go to them and say, hey, what are you doing in your life? Because I noticed something different in your life. What you'll find out is this, that they are close to God. The outpouring of that is They love to be in church. They love to be with other believers. Transparency is a part of their life. Because they want to be as close to God as possible. The only way to do that then is this, number six. Look what it says. Discipline. Discipline. To be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, and holy, you must be disciplined. Literally, it means this, one in control of strength. One in control, control of strength. Why is this so important? 
it's so important that a godly man is disciplined in his life because he cannot lead somebody else if he cannot lead himself. He cannot lead somebody else if he cannot lead himself. We've all been on an airplane before and the flight attendant is talking and we've all been there and it's true now for all of us every time we're on the airplane. Nobody ever listens to the flight attendant anymore. I mean, really, they're just up there doing their little spiel thing and we're just sitting there looking at the, the beverage list or, you know, getting our phones going and nobody's listening to that poor flight attendant anymore. And what is the poor flight attendant telling you? It's telling you this, that in the event of an emergency, we're still tuned out. I mean, an emergency might happen, we're still tuned out. The mask comes down. What's the first thing you do? You place it what? Place it on yourself, and then you place it on the child, right? You place it on yourself first before you place it on the child. That's the same principle here with being disciplined. You want to lead somebody else? Then you've got to be able to lead yourself. You've got to be disciplined yourself. A godly man is so disciplined in his life. He's pursuing holiness. He's pursuing righteousness. He loves what is good. He's enthusiastic about growing in grace. He has discipline all over his life. He now turns his attention to others to try and help them. And if you don't discipline yourself, you'll run out of spiritual oxygen. That's why Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7. You could turn back and look at it for yourself. I'll just say it for you. It's something you've heard, 1 Timothy 4.7. It says this, Discipline yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. The word there for train or for discipline there. It's the word that we get, the word for gymnastics. It's the word that we get for gymnasium. It has the, the idea that you'd go to work out. You'd go and you'd work hard and you'd, you'd stretch yourself. Spiritually speaking, then, it's this. It's that you would have a holy sweat. Like you would go to the gym to work out, you, you would do the same in your own life to, to train yourself and be disciplined yourself for godliness. Meaning what? Meaning if needed, you get up early. If needed, you stay up late. If needed, you say no to certain activities. You say no to sin that easily entangles you. You join accountability groups. You get yourself disciplined and you start smelling like you work out spiritually. You give the aroma off that, that your life is so consumed with God because you've trained that week in the purposes of God. Without discipline, there is no discipleship. Without a holy sweat, there is no sanctification. You've disciplined yourself that week to resist sexual lust. You're mentally disciplined. You're constant in your prayer. You're with the Lord every day. You're disciplined in your speech. You're disciplined with your eyes. You're disciplined in the way you deal with people at work. And you're disciplined with your time. I was just talking this week to a, a friend of mine who, his name's Ryan. He played Major League Baseball with the, uh, with the Texas Rangers. And he was in the, the minor league system. He did it for three or four years. And I remember asking him back when he played, I said, Ryan, what separates the great players from just this pool of those who play minor league baseball for like 10 years? What separates the two of them? And Ryan said, without hesitation, it's discipline. He goes, you could point out 
those who are going to be in the major leagues or were in the major leagues and they're hurt and they're down in AAA and AA ball, you, you can point them out because of their discipline. They have a routine and they stick to it. They don't wander off and just do whatever they want to do. They're, they're so focused on, on their training. They're so focused on, uh, on their goals that they say disciplined in all of it. And when a believer, listen closely, when a believer makes the decision to do things without the reminder from others and without the presence of others, this is when they become disciplined. When you can do these things without anybody reminding you or telling you to do it, and when it's not in the presence of others, and that's the habit of your life, is when you become disciplined. It's just who you are. Proverbs 25, 28 warns us, though, warns us to this. A man without self-control, a man without discipline, is like a city broken into and left without walls. What does that mean? It means this, that a man who does not have discipline has no defense mechanism. He is like a broken city. He is like a man, a city that has no walls around it to defend himself. He's fair game to the enemy. He's easy prey. His life will be destroyed without discipline. And here's the point for the elders. Here's the point for the leaders. And I said this from the beginning. There's no way to lead others if you cannot lead yourself. Here's the point for you husbands. There's no way to lead your wife if you cannot lead yourself. There's no way to lead your kids if you cannot lead yourself. There's no way to lead others around you if you cannot lead yourself. If you're not disciplined yourself, don't expect those around you to be disciplined as well. You must discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness so that you can lead others to godliness. And so Paul tells Titus, Find the disciplined man. Find these men. Find the one that's hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You say that's quite a standard. Can anybody live up to that standard? Uh, the answer to that is no. The answer to that is we're all going to fail. The answer to that is we all need to continually work at these things. The answer to that is we do this with grace and forgiveness and love, but we hold people to the standard. We don't change it. We don't lower it. We just give accountability to it. And we're gracious in it. And we lovingly call people to godliness we lovingly call people to this standard because we know this is for the good of your own life. This is for the good of the church. This is for the good of those around us. But yet we're gracious in this. I got to tell you, this has been one of the most, most challenging couple of weeks of my life, listening, and listening, to this, listening to myself talk. One, uh, that's always challenging, not just in the last couple of weeks, the last few years but studying this passage and going, oh my gosh, this is a high standard. 
I got to clean some things up. I got to get the mop out. I got to get the broom out. I got to start dusting some things off. I got to start living up to the standard and, and start doing some things that have just kind of crept off to the side. Because God has called me to this. I want to be these things for you. I desire to be this kind of leader for you. I desire to be this kind of leader in the church. And we're in this together, working these things out together. And we need each other. We need accountability in these things. We're not meant to do this alone. That's why we have the church. So my question for you is this, as we close off this section before we hit the one skill that an elder is to have, which is to, to teach the church, and the teaching of the church is to add protection to the church. What on this list Maybe you just need to underline it or circle it or write it in the margin. What on this list needs the most work in your life? Go ahead, take a look. Read it over. What, what is it? What, what, what needs the most work? Where, where can you this week on your drive home just say to God, God, will you please help me with my arrogance? God, will you please help me? I'm quick-tempered. I, I don't want to be quick-tempered. God, I want to live apart from this world. Give me the courage to say no to temptation. What, what in your life? Do some, some reflection, some spiritual inventory on your own heart right now. If anybody says, I've got every single one of these, these done, then you need to go back to number one. Don't be arrogant, okay? You've got number one to work on, okay? We all have something to work on. Work on it today. Commit it to prayer. Tell somebody that you need help in this area. Say, hey, hold me accountable. I want to invite people over to my home who I don't normally invite over to my home. Can you just hold me accountable to that? Great, I'll hold you accountable to that. Hey, I need to get disciplined in my prayer life. Hold me accountable to be disciplined in my prayer Great. Look, that's easy, right? Nobody here is going, wait, you don't pray every day? Wait, you don't read your Bible every day? Oh, okay. No, we're all going, okay, let's go. Let's do this together. We need each other. That's what the family of God is for. Next, next week, we'll look at nine, maybe 10. I don't know. We'll find out next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for allowing us to peer into heaven to see who you are. God, we know that you are so hospitable. One day, you're going to invite a bunch of strangers into your home called heaven. And we're going to be all the more thankful for it. God, we're so thankful that you're just. God, thank you for not being a fair God. Because what's fair is that we all deserve hell. Thank you for being a just God. God, thank you for being holy and set apart. Thank you for being a, a God who loves that which is good and hates that which is evil. God, please help us as we contemplate these things. We need grace so bad to be able to do anything good. And may we desire to be like you. May we desire to be called 
to godliness and holiness. May we pursue sanctification in our lives. May we seek the help from others so that we can accomplish these things. And in the end, Lord, we're just going to give you the glory. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name be the glory. So help us with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.